Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Life and Limb podcast. My name is Chuck Anderson. This is episode 16. Thank you very much for joining me. Appreciate having you here, whether you are listening through lifeandlimb.com or through iTunes or SoundCloud or whatever. Um, glad that you are checking this show out. Um, if you are a first time listener, uh, glad to have you here. If you have been listening for a while, um, I just wanted to say <laughs> it's been the longest I've gone between episodes now. So there hasn't been an episode for almost two months, which I was feeling really bad about, um, that I'd let so much time pass. And instead of apologizing for that, I really just want to say thank you to quite a few people who, um, over the course of the last several weeks, um, since I've, you know, haven't done an episode for a while, um, have either emailed me or come up to me in person, um, and asked, you know, what's up? Is there going to be another episode? Are you kind of like giving up on the show or whatever? And no, I'm definitely not. Um, it's just kind of summer and work and family stuff all hitting at one time. So it's just sort of been a little less on my radar and, um, you know, definitely not intentional, but, uh, having people ask, you know, um, what the status was on the show and, uh, ask about new episodes really meant a lot to me. So I was very encouraged, um, to hear that this show has kind of become something that's meaningful to, uh, more people than just myself or the person I'm interviewing, you know, or, or the people who happen to just, you know, leave a review or say something on Twitter about it. Um, you know, there's people out there who are really listening and, and are enjoying the show. And to hear that, uh, was really cool, you know, having taken a break and have people ask what was, what the deal was, um, kind of, was, I don't want to say shocking at all, but it was kind of a wake up call, um, that, you know, this is a cool thing and to interview people and, and it means something to people, you know, to be able to listen to it and to learn from it and everything. And I've always known that, but I think just a couple of people asking me about it over these last several weeks, um, has been uh, really cool. I've really appreciated that. So, um, that's that. I just wanted to make sure to mention that. And, uh, let's see what else. I think that's it for housekeeping stuff. Um, but, uh, today, uh, for episode 16, I'm really excited about this one. I'm joined by Brandon Stosi and Brandon is a senior editor for pitchfork.com. And, uh, he is a really, really cool guy, really smart guy. Um, knows a ton about music. He's really spent his life, you know, in and around music. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's just got a ton of really great insight on what it's like to run a site as busy and popular and revered and also at the same time despised at sometimes, um, as pitchfork. And it really is a very polarizing site. Um, but at the same time, it's a very trusted site and all the things that it's spun off the pitchfork festival, um, his own sort of, um, baby of a festival, which is Basilica soundscape, uh, and, um, up in Hudson, Valley, New York, um, all that stuff has been is uh, really interesting to ask him about and learn about just kind of how all these things have come together and come to fruition and, and, uh, just what it's like kind of behind the scenes there. So really enjoyed talking with him and I think you'll enjoy it too. It's nice change of pace from the more visual artist and designer thing and talk to someone who's more of a, a journalist, um, and has expertise in a different field, which has always really been, um, something I wanted to do more of for this show. So, um, anyways, I think that's about it. Uh, you can check out, uh, lifeandlimb.com, twitter.com slash lifeandlimb for more information, uh, past episodes and all that good stuff and subscribe on iTunes. Um, you can just search life and limb and you find it on there. And I think that's about it. So without further ado, my conversation with Brandon Stosi here on life and limb, please enjoy. Mm-hmm. 
Hey, what's up, everybody? Today, I am joined by uh, Senior Editor, Director of Events, and Managing Editor uh, for Pitchfork, or I guess that's Managing Editor for the Pitchfork Review, uh, Brandon Stosi. Brandon, what's up? Hey, how are you? I'm thanks doing... Yeah, thanks for being on. I appreciate it. I was just uh, talking with Brandon a minute ago that this is the earliest podcast episode I've done yet, uh, so I feel like we're doing like this morning show, and we should have like some sports, maybe like talk about traffic... I'm all for you. I have my coffee in hand. I'm ready. I do too, man. I'm sitting here uh, feeling feeling like I'm doing this at the time that this kind of thing's meant to be done at. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, you uh, you guys super busy here leading up to the Fourth of July, or what's the what what is what's it get like around Pitchfork uh, on, a, on a holiday week? Yeah, I mean, it's, the thing with Pitchfork is we're always busy because it's a pretty small s- staff, all considering for the amount of stuff that we do. Mm-hmm. So it's like everybody wears a bunch of hats and everyone um, is always working on different projects. So we're having a shortened week always means like we have to get the album streams that we do done a day early. And we have, um, we've been doing these weekly mixes with uh, MoMA PS1 for their summer warm-up series. So, you know, we're getting that stuff done a day early mm-hmm. and um, getting reviews set up. And yeah, so it's always, it's always everyone's just juggling a lot of stuff. I mean, part of the good thing about having a small staff is like things can get done very quickly. And part of being, since we're still an independent website, we don't really have to answer to any overlords or anything. So we can push things through on our own, but it also just means that there's not a lot of downtime necessarily. Sure. Um, so it's, everyone's always just, you know, like someone might be running news one day and also like dealing with tracks and also trying to uh, handle something else. And like, you know, when you did my, my introduction thing, it's, that's why, I have so many ridiculous, you know, so many titles because it's just like um, you have to do a lot of different things all the time. Right. Yeah. And which I, is fun. And I, th- I wonder if a perception from just the general reader of uh, Pitchfork, uh, whatever, you know, if you guys don't have new reviews up, like I don't think there's any new ones up today that were different, or maybe there are. Um, was there yeah, any- today we have the overlooked records, which is where we we select some records from the past okay year that maybe got good reviews or whatever, but weren't best in music and maybe didn't get as much um, shine as some other things. So we're just, you know, here, here's, for, honestly, it's sort of one of my favorite um, features of the year because often there's stuff in there that's kind of maybe weirder or um, more genre kind of things. Right, like right. I wrote about the Container record, which is you know, like a noisy dance thing. And mm-hmm. then this album that Stephen O'Malley did with uh, Orin Abarchi and um, Randall Dunn, just this kind of like, Drony kind of spaced out weird mm-hmm. records. So yeah, it's, it's like a way to kind of shine a light on some of those things that might've slipped through the cracks. So we, we have that today instead of reviews. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Cause I, I think I've wondered before, like if people see a site like Pitchfork, which has, you know, like you said, not a ton of people behind the scenes, but um, a small team that's doing a lot of work, um, maybe, uh, you know, uh, the work of a team that would be, you know, twice the size of what it actually is. And if people see that there's no new reviews, they're like, oh, I guess everyone at Pitchfork's just kind of taking the day off. But so there's like so much going on that you guys handle um, all the time. But um, before we get into some of the more day to day or like the Pitchfork or um, that kind of stuff, um, I kind of wanted to ask about you personally because so you've already mentioned a couple of records and, and and artists that just kind of the general um 
you know, music fan all the way down to a more savvy listener who, you know, checks Pitchfork every day or someone who really digs and has been, you know, just collecting records and mu- and listening to music of all kinds for years. Um, so I'm, re- I'm always curious about kind of where everyone comes from, you know, and, and sort of their musical interests. So um, you're, you're in Brooklyn now. Um, are yeah. you, are, where are you, is that, are you from New York originally? You know, my, my parents were, my mom was from Queens and my dad from Brooklyn. And then when they were starting a family, they moved to New Jersey. So I grew up in New Jersey, um, Southern New Jersey. And I, my grandparents were always in, in Brooklyn, which was nice. So I could, I would sort of go back and forth and come into the city. And so I had access to the record stores here and stuff like that. Cause the town I grew up in was very small. It was like, uh, 800 people, oh, uh, wow, like okay. a small little farm mm-hmm. <clears throat> town. But I mean, the good thing about that was there was a lot of space out there. So mm-hmm. when I was a kid, I would put on, um, hardcore shows oh, in awesome. the backyard and things like that. And my parents got divorced when I was really young. So they had different places. And my dad ended up moving to this kind of pseudo farm. I mean, he wasn't a farmer, but he it had land like a farm in a sense. And so in the backyard, we could do these events and we would rent, um, hay trucks and kind of that would be the stage. And, you get a band's play. So it gave me the ability to do that. But then, um, you know, we mostly my friends and I would go into Philadelphia to get records or if I was visiting, um, relatives in New York, I would be able to get stuff up here. But, but yeah, so it's, I ended up coming back to Brooklyn, I guess, like maybe I've been here 15 years now or something mm-hmm. like that. Okay. Um, what was your sort of introduction into hardcore music, you know, because for me, I, so I'm 29. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, so when I was like 15, um, and still mainly just listening to the radio. Like I grew up in the Chicago suburbs and like, there just wasn't much of a, um, you know, a connection for me to find stuff. But then Napster came out and like, that was really my chance to discover the way things that maybe a people, a generation just before me had found Mm -hmm. in record stores and more in like fanzines and things like that. Um, I started, you know, I, I, like I basically like reigned over the family computer. Like I was the only one who really knew how to use it. (laughs) And so like, that's where I discovered a lot of stuff. And then I met like, one or two friends who also happened to be into things that most other people weren't. And so that was really sort of, and then I really latched on with them and we'd go to shows and I'd go downtown to Chicago up from the burbs, like you were saying you would do with Philly. And, you know, and so that was really my sort of entry point into music that I couldn't just turn on, you know, alternative rock radio in here. Um, So was there any sort of like breaking point for you, like when you went from A to B in terms of listening to Mm -hmm. a different type of music? And like, what were some of those bands and and albums that really kind of carried that? For yeah, I, I've had this. I, there's this guy, um, Moss, that I, I'm still friends with, who I've, I've been friends with since first grade. Um, his name is actually Pete, but I started calling him Moss when I was a kid because <laughs> Moss kind of thing. And um, he and I kind of we discovered music because together, his older sister had like a couple cassettes that she lent us, like a seven seconds cassette and um, I think like a flipper cassette and just a couple of those kind of things and. So from there, he and I kind of branched out and we'd go and just search around and look for things. So we discovered Youth of Today and Minor Threat and um, things like that. And then as we got deeper into that, we sort of discovered SST and then got into Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Jr. and all those kind of things. So it was really like he and I were the, the two people that were at that time growing up that were into it because... Yeah, I just turned 40, so I'm older. And it's like when it was sort of pre-internet and what we basically had was just we would have to travel and look for things. We'd go to record stores and um, do fanzines. Um, I did a zine for a long time. 
that was called white bread that mm-hmm. sort of about growing up in a white trash town. And I started doing that in high school and then did it through college. Um, and so that was like nineties kind of zine culture stuff. So a lot of things after this, like the, the early days of he and I figuring out hardcore together. Um, then we went to the same high school and, and there kind of got savvier and just like found other things like got more into noise music and, um, more into like deeper into kind of, Metal, like metal was something that was always there because I had an older sister who was very into hair metal, but we started like discovering Slayer and, and, um, early Metallica and things like that, that were a little bit less, like she was very much into poison and warrant and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And so that was always around and Striper and and, uh, (laughs) Molly Crew and all that. And then we kind of took a step back and we're like, wait a second and found like kind of the heavier stuff and Uh things that were coming more out of like a punk sort of um, feel and sort of darker and, and whatever. So right. it was really he and I, the two of us kind of just always looking for stuff and figuring things out together. And I remember in high school, we went to this March on Washington and DC about affordable housing for the homeless. And he and I kind of broke away from the, uh, March and tried to find the discord house and <laughs> we couldn't find it, but just like things like that, you know, yeah, so it was yeah. just a lot of kind of discovery, like, right. all right, let's try and find the discord house. And so like, we walked around for a while and yeah. got lost and couldn't find <laughs> it. Um, but I think like, because it was before the computer, it was just a lot of trial and error too. Right. You wouldn't know what things sounded like. So we were like, Hey, what's this band? You know, let's, and just sort of try it out. And there's like so many, if a band had three initials in the name, we would generally just buy it. We're like, all right, this band is like, a band with three initials, yeah. this like MDF or right. DRI or whatever. And I remember we were into the circle jerks and just into like anything we could get our hands on. We were just kind of absorbing all that black flag. Sure. And, yeah. um, and that's such a cool feeling to discover that stuff because at the time, like you said, sort of like instead of just, you know, getting into the hair metal, there's this sort of, you know, some people just kind of have like a feeling like there's got to be something else out there. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you find that first band, like at the floodgates just open, like I remember, you know, the, I, I think everybody probably has their own sort of like Fugazi discovery or minor threat discovery, like, or, you know, a mm-hmm. band that sort of like really changed a lot of things for them. And it is really bizarre to think that diff- different like generations that'll discover music like that that went on to obviously affect so many other bands like i i heard waiting room for the first time on napster you know and then i went out and (laughs) bought that 13 songs cd at the you know the store in my parents you know suburb and and like people before me like would find that a record store now like you know i got an 18 year old brother now so like he's Uh gonna hear that for the first time like on youtube or something which is insane to think about but it's it's just it's cool and there's no kind of uh um, going back to the first time you hear something like that. But I guess right. what's really interesting to me is how you've gone on to really turn that um, as sort of a, a passion and a hobby into a full-blown, you know, career now. Um, so, like, what was kind of that next step after, you like, discovering that, obviously, finding a real passion and love for music, putting on shows and everything? Obviously, like, this is really just who you are very much so. Um, was there a, a point where you started writing more about it? Um, what was kind of the first, like you know, um, journalism side or the first sort of, you know, um, I guess editorial journalism side of, uh, taking your love of music into that, into that realm. Yeah. I think I mean, it really started with zine stuff. You know, my friend, this guy, Josh, um, that I was friends with in high school, he and I started a zine initially and we called it nasal spray. And that was like the first kind of writing that we did. That was just kind of our own writing about music. And we did record reviews and, um, just general, like, I mean, we were like little punk kids. So it was kind of a lot of, if 
I've someone sent me a copy recently. Like I, I couldn't find any of my old copies, so an old friend of mine found some and sent them to me. And it's like pretty ridiculous, but it's also you're like a teenager kind of figuring things out. So we're like being really over the top in a lot of our writing and all uh-huh. of that. Yeah. And then um, so from nasal spray, we started then like changing the name of each issue that we would do. Um, and then eventually, I kind of just started doing my own zine, which was white bread, and that started as a music thing. But then it kind of became more like instead of reviews, it became more just me kind of talking, just kind of writing about what I was doing. So if I was in a you know band at the time, it would be us like me writing about us traveling around, like trying to you know play like cruddy shows and in basements and stuff like that, or me talking about the time I was vegan. So it would be like me kind of talking about vegan restaurants I found and just like that kind of stuff. So it became much more of a personal kind of zine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then during that time, uh, I think the first writing I did that was for someone other than myself was this, um, really long standing New Jersey zine, um, Jersey beat, which still exists. And the guy, Jim Testa, who runs that and still runs it sort of published my first like record reviews. It was a, a free thing. Like I didn't, I didn't get paid to do it. I would just kind of write these reviews and he would send me like 10 records in the mail and then I would choose from which ones I wanted to write about. And so I did that. Um, and, and then when I got to college, I wanted to write for the school newspaper. It kind of had this lucky thing where I wrote a couple reviews. I think my first review was of, of the laughing hyenas and um, like the Jesus lizard. I was really into touch and go stuff at that time. Mm-hmm. And, the main editor guy was graduating and he kind of called me in one day. This is when I was still a freshman, like my first year. And he said, you know, I like your writing and I, I want you to take over the editorial thing. And he gave me like a Lester Bangs book and like very, you know, he was like an older dude and just very like, I'm going to take you under my wing kind of thing. And so then he, he graduated. And so my first year of college, I was suddenly the, the music editor of the school paper, which um, gave me a lot of uh, access to music and um, a lot of like, promos coming my way and at the same time I worked in a record store this was all in New Brunswick uh, mm-hmm. New Jersey so I worked in a record store called Cheap Thrills which is like was an independent record store that's now out of business so I kind of had this system where I would get all these promos and then I would go and sell them <laughs> in the store <laughs> and then I'd be able to buy the stuff I wanted to get um, <laughs> because I had like a discount and so I was just like consuming tons of music yeah yeah in that way we'd also go to the Princeton Record Exchange which was not that far away so my friend Tom had a car, so we like drive down there. And from there, it was kind of like doing the, um, the the newspaper stuff and then the zine stuff. And in the 90s, there was such a, a culture around zines. So there were just so many people doing zines. And so I would just contribute to other people's um, zines. And again, this is all like free writing, just kind of writing stuff and um, whatever. And, and just everyone sort of helping each other with their, their zines. And then it was... When I was done college, I was, I'd been interning at Musician Magazine because um, we had to intern for part of our degree. It was like a degree in English and journalism. And I remember like at the end, the guy that had been my kind of overseer at Musician was heading off to Rolling Stone. And he was kind of saying, you know, like, we should keep in touch and all this kind of thing. And he was a really nice guy. But because of that time, I was still kind of like a, a shithead punk kid. I was just like, yeah, whatever. I would never, like, would never go there. And um not that he was even offering me a job, but it was just kind of like, yeah, well, I'm going to go like explore instead, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so when I got done college, I actually like met a girl and moved to Canada for um, a few years and just kind of didn't write. <laughs> like I wrote for um, like there was a, a free weekly thing in, um, in Alberta 
that was like a, a local in the Calgary, like a local weekly arts thing. And I wrote for them and did like a few things here and there. And I kind of still did zine stuff now and then, but I kind of really entered this period where I like didn't listen to much music. Like I like basically pared it down to, I listened to like a lot of like just weird noise stuff and was still interested, but I kind of had no money at that point. So just kind of by necessity, I'd listen to the same things over and over again and, and whatever. And then I just sort of, um, moved back to New York at one point and was like, all right, I need to like start writing again. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started freelancing. And, um, I was, so I wrote for like the village voice and, um, spin and playboy and, uh, a bunch of other spots. And it kind of snowballed from there where it was just like, eventually, you know, at the time I had this kind of part-time job at NYU in the rare books room. Um, and I was eventually able to quit that. And I also had this part-time thing working for an art dealer and I was able to quit that and just start doing the the writing stuff full time. Uh-huh. But it was, it's like one of those things where it was just like a slow build where for a long time it always felt like, yeah, this is something I'll do on the side, but right. I always have to have like another job. Sure. And then just like through like a couple lucky turns, um, it, it came together. I mean, like in the early days of Pitchfork, we were all like, you know, just kind of doing it because um, we were very excited to be publishing stuff and like everyone was getting paid like 10 bucks a review and stuff, you know, it was just like very small. And so it's kind of all just been a continuation of like, all right, just let's keep writing about things. And, um, eventually it came together, but I really, I'm honestly very lucky because I was never quite, um, I didn't really have like a, I knew what I wanted to do, but I've always been kind of like, eh, it'll just all come together kind of person. Mm-hmm. So I've never been like much of a, uh, necessarily like a mover and shaker just kind of like all right whatever this will happen and it came together but it could have very easily not come together like when i was in canada i worked in a gas station and i worked in all these random jobs and eventually lucked out and got a job at a good art gallery and stuff but it was all again just like it could have very easily i could very easily still be at that um shell gas station Mm -hmm. in a yeah, and I, th- I think that's the kind of stuff that I've come to find with this show and everybody that I've interviewed so far. Um, like, I mean, it's it's amazing how much of a common thread that seems to be. Like, everyone sort of has that point in their life where they're like, you know, is the thing that I love most ever going to be able to really turn into something? Like, I don't know, maybe not, but I, just, I guess I'll just kind of keep doing it on the side while I do these other jobs or whatever. And, you know, it, it, for the people who love it the most and take it the most seriously. It always seems to be like, yeah, it was a lucky turn or it could have easily not happened. But mm-hmm. I mean, there's still definitely a sense of like, yeah, maybe, but there was something different about you and, you know, your passion for doing this that was going to inevitably lead to some sort of semblance of what you're doing now, one way or the other, just because it was way too much of a, um, you know, way too much of a, a thing for you. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I just yeah. find with everybody. So it's all, I don't know. It's always cool just because, I mean, at the, at the same time, I mean, for every person like that, there's a hundred people who, you know, they've, they just like screwed around too much and nothing ever mm-hmm. came about. So I just think it's, yeah. you know, it is always cool. And I, and I think, um, you know, it's easy to sort of look at this stuff as like this hobbyist thing or whatever. And then you realize it's really turning into a career, even if it's sort of a slow burn. And the next thing you know, it's like, um, just so much stuff going on and you have to sort of sit back and be like, how did I get here? Like, when did this happen? Um, yeah, definitely. And it's always like everything I did always connected to it somehow. Like even when I was in Canada and I ended up applying for some like arts grant because they, they actually fund the arts in Canada. So then I ended up getting like a grant to make a short film and the film was kind of based in 
kind of like the, the subcultures I'd been growing up in. And so I wrote a screenplay. And so I was, I was definitely doing things that kind of connected back. And I think for a while, the idea, suddenly I was like, you know, I want to kind of write fiction and write these kind of things. And they were always connected to music, but there was a period where I, I was exploring more of that. And I think that's when I was in Canada, I was doing that kind of stuff. And just kind of pawning things for a while to get by, like selling like a guitar or selling a Moog and things like that. And um, just by any means necessary kind mm -hmm. of thing and trying to do this film stuff or whatever. And then it always just came back to music. And so ended up, that's something that has always been such a big part of it that it was, I, you know, yeah, like you're saying, it's like you're incredibly lucky to actually have that be your job. Like the fact that I get up in the morning and, and walk to our office and like my job is to listen to a lot of music and um put on shows and stuff it's like yeah this is what i was doing when i was 13 years old but now i actually have like a family and this is how i support the family right <laughs> right yeah it's so cool and and i think like it's a better time than ever well it's probably the only time really i mean where you know where people like you or i be, could be doing exactly what it is that we like to do um yeah. and to the to the extent that it becomes a livelihood you know i mean there's like there's such an audience for for this and there's an audience for what you guys put up this morning to read about overlooked records things that maybe they you know that got reviewed at some point and didn't have a score that someone would normally like give any mind to or didn't strike them as something that maybe they'd be interested in like it just i mean the, the audience for that used to be so limited to the zines that you know but with the internet and i think that's such an interesting part too of all this is just kind of the changes that you've seen i guess because of your age and because of like you know all the different sort of um parts of your life that have uh, sort of um come to be where you know where you're at now the internet's obviously uh -huh. i mean you've seen from without the internet all the way to what it is now um, I mean, I don't even, it's almost like, I don't even know what to ask in, in <laughs> this because it's obviously such a massive, um, you know, hard to quantify how big of a change there's been because of the internet. But I mean, do you feel, it's the same, yeah, yeah, it's the same, but it's just that there's a different, pla it's a different platform and it's a bigger yeah. platform. It can bring all the people who maybe were localized and, and regional, you know, with the zines all together mm -hmm. under one umbrella. And would you credit that? you know, in the internet to obviously the existence of Pitchfork at all, but like to your personal success and like making connections with people and, and everything. Yeah, I so, I mean, it's like, yeah, when I was doing the zine stuff, it's like, I never made a cent off of that. It was always like, I would pay, I would charge what the postage cost was and things like that. And I think you're right. You know, with the dawn of the internet, suddenly things became much easier. And, um, like Mark, who's, who, who is editor in chief here, like he and I have had, he's 44 and we've had discussions about that where it's kind of like we've lived this kind of um, existence where a large part of our lives, there were no internet. And now suddenly there are, and it's like, there's positives and negatives. Mm -hmm. Like one of the, back in the day, like I remember the thing that was much different was I remember I was in Montana with a f couple of friends and I saw some guy in a digits t-shirt and I was like, Whoa, the guy with the digits t-shirt. And you could sort of know, like if we, went up and talked to that guy, we'd probably have things in common mm -hmm. and be friends or at least something. Cause it was a time when to get a digits t-shirt, like took an effort and not many people had heard of them. And now it's kind of music. This kind of music has become so huge that it's, that's the interesting thing where now you could see some dude in like a death heaven shirt and you would, would have absolutely nothing right. in common with right. that person. And yeah. it's like, that has changed. And I don't know if that's for the better or for the worse, but it definitely is like a much more wide scale thing. Or you hear all these, high school kids who were into animal collective or this or that. And it's like, when I was in high school, it was like literally me and my four friends that were really into this kind of music. And then there was like our friends who were 
just all only listened to metal and we were like, we were cool with them, but they weren't when we wandered into like being into, um, you know, dinosaur and stuff like that. They were like, uh, this is not so, you know, but it really was like a small, small thing. And so it's amazing that it has become something on a grand scale where you can be writing about converge and like, that's how you're paying your bills. And it's just, it's, um, yeah, it's, I, I do think if without the internet, it would be much different, which is why I think a lot of these print magazines have, have been going under cause it's just too expensive to, yeah, um, right. to, to pay for the print. And I mean, it's, I mean, at the same time, we just launched a print magazine. Yeah. So Which I was, was going to ask about, yeah. How, how's yeah. the, um, the print magazine going and like, you know, how, how did you guys approach doing that and not turning it into just the printed version of Pitchfork? Um, like what, it, what, what's some of the things that, you know, when people would look through the magazine, um, they would find different. There's also for me, just the sense of, I, I just like taking a break from a computer and flipping through a magazine mm-hmm. and also just having that, like I collect magazines. I just love, you know, that format. Um, but so what, what's been the challenge? Um, kind of, it's, it's so funny, like how that goes full circle. I mean, you start with zines, <laughs> you know, Xeroxing things at, yeah. you know, a photo a copy shop or whatever. And then you go to a website and you feel like, okay, prints kind of whatever now, but then like there's sort of magnetized back to print and every, like people want to do a print magazine now, like I, you know, and, um, there's still, yeah, I mean, I don't know, maybe there's something like a romanticism about like touching the paper and actually like reading something that's tangible. Um, but what, what was kind of, what spurred that on? What was the draw to do that? And how's, how, how's your involvement gone um, with doing something that's been a kind of different format from the website? Yeah, I mean, it's funny, like what you're saying, I was actually, actually talking to my dad the other day on the phone about that, where, where he was sort of saying, yeah, because he, he was in visiting Brooklyn a couple weeks ago, and I gave him some copies of the magazine. And he was saying just that, like, yeah, you've come full circle with, you know, doing the zine stuff early on, printing it at Kinko's, you know, when you find the secret code to print things for free and all that <laughs> stuff. And now, um, you know, it's like glossy magazine. And it's, and I think the way that we, the idea was to do a quarterly so that it, it's not like a monthly thing. It comes out four times a year and it's things that might not make sense on pitchfork in some cases, like maybe a longer piece on the history of like a, an obscure artist or, a longer piece on something about um, record collecting or something like that. Um, so in some cases, it's things like that 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 might that a more long form kind of thing that uh-huh. may not make a hundred percent sense for the site. Um, and then there's also we do reprint things from the site in this section called Control P. And with that, it's like things that are reprinted but with with updated sidebars and, and things. So for instance, if someone were to write. A review or write a, a feature and then we we reprint it in the pitchwork review it would have a column with maybe like and here's what happened after i wrote the thing or whatever. okay and some sort of follow-up or yeah, yeah. you're like a, like we did this elliot smith oral history and we reprinted that in the magazine part of it and then jason who did the oral history was was able to kind of like talk to a few other people after the facts and then we added those like, just like things like that where it kind of updates it uh-huh. but that way people who maybe aren't reading the site every day or um aren't hundred percent keyed into all that, that they see this piece, but also it's a way for some of the things that kind of deserve to be in print. Sure. Of course, everything deserves to be in print, but, but the things yeah. that are like especially great right. can sort of show back up there in this print version. And I mean, it's also our um, creative director, Mike Renault, who's, who does a lot of our design work um, and has a, a design team now. He um, is, I think just has a lot of fun with it. Honestly, it's yeah. like, it gives him a way to, you know, those cover stories we have sort of push the boundary of what a website does. And, um, he's very, uh, he's been doing all the design stuff for like the, the Basilica 
event we do up in Hudson and just really very thoughtful about it, all the work he does. Like the, the show no mercy logo, he made that and he like hand drew it. And, um, he does collages for a lot of his flyers. So he'll actually like hand do a collage and then I don't know, photograph it or scan it or whatever he does and like turn that into the piece. So I think this was just something that he has a real interest in and, um, in print and like tangible things and paper stock and all yeah, that. Yeah. So it's given him a way to like really, go for it in a way that he can't necessarily do on the site. Sure. So, but I have to say uh, the, the pitchfork, um, the website itself, you know, the, it's kind of gone through different iterations over the years and it's definitely at its, its nicest and cleanest, um, from a UI standpoint and from a design standpoint, everything right now. Um, but the pitch, the advanced stuff that you guys do, I mean, it's such, mm-hmm. it's beautiful. I, I don't know who is responsible for that specifically. Um, but, and then also some of the feature, like the stories that you guys do that kind of have their own little, like, you know, sort of mini sites themselves that are different from mm-hmm. the way the pitchfork looks, but especially the way that advanced works. I, I love it. It's so nice. It's such a, this experience instead of just like, here's the album cover, here's a track list and then play, you know, you have these full video things. And just like, I don't know, it's great because, uh, you know, to have a site like pitchfork, you know, you guys know you have this big audience and it's nice that things are being considered from all angles. It's not just like getting the music right and like kind of the design comes secondary. It's clear that you guys have assembled a team of people who really care and are really good about their, you know, good at their jobs from, you know, picking what gets reviewed to writing and everything, but all the way to the other end of the spectrum to package it up really nicely and and put a really beautiful bow on it with the design. And even like the um, Pitchfork Fest site, it's really simple, but it just, it's, it's exactly what it needs to be. Um, and I think that's a, probably one of the coolest things is to someone like me who's more of a visual guy and people who are designers. It's, it's nice to see that a site like Pitchfork that carries a lot of weight gets cared about from the design angle. So it seems like you guys basically have a team full of people who all really love their jobs and are kind of all in on everything together. Um, and I kind of wanted to ask about the team that you work with and how many people over there. Mm-hmm. But like how often, how, how collaborative is it? Like how, how much does, you know... Um, maybe a record review from one person. I mean, is there any sort of vote in terms of score? Do you just personally Uh pick it? I mean, like what's the, what's kind of the day to day, like you and then another dude and then, you know, some, someone else like um, Uh working together. Yeah. I mean, first thanks. Nice of you to say. And then, and also, um, yeah, I mean, super collaborative. It's like the advanced stuff is um, like, I, I, I generally pick what we stream and then, um, it's this Mike Renault and then Matt, and this guy Matt Denowitz are the two that came up with that platform. And so, at this point, Matt builds them each week. He has like a system of how he builds them, and he does a lot of programming and, and that side of things. And then um, Mike kind of came up with like how it was like visually presented. But so a lot of the times, it's there's a lot of collaboration where it's me talking with Denowitz about all right, we need to like we're going to build this advance, and him coming up with ideas to kind of constantly sort of adapt that so it, it, it gets better and smoother. And then um, with like with events, you know, I'll say, yeah, we have shows coming up and Mike and I will go back and forth, like figuring out, okay, what kind of flyer do we need? And um, what do we want to get across? Or like, what are these, you know, just sort of source material and stuff like that. But uh-huh. as, as far as the views, it's like when, if we're, if we're going to pitch something, we generally like, like, it's one of those things where if there's a record coming out and like everybody hates it, you know, everyone on staff is like, this thing blows. You're not going to suddenly, like, <laughs> one person's like, this is amazing. You're not going to sign it to the person that says it's amazing because, like, generally everyone else is like, yeah, this is horrible. And so you kind of already are assigning to someone that you know kind of fits within, like, what 
the overall view from the the, the magazine is or mm-hmm. like the, the publication is, which should be the same with anything. Like if you're writing for Rolling Stone, they're not going to assign a Bruce Springsteen review to some guy that's like fuck Bruce Springsteen because you know they have like <laughs> they they love him. So it's yeah. like that kind of thing is already in place. So people make pitches and we kind of look over all the pitches and figure out which person has like the most interesting angle sure. um, who fits within what we're thinking about it as well. And, and then we, they, we also ask them to give us a range of what the score might be. Okay. So again, so if someone's like, I, I would go like 7.3 to 7.6 or something like that. And if that seems all in line, then, you know, you assign it and then the review comes and there definitely comes down to like haggling here and there and sure. maybe say, you know, this kind of reads more like this score than that score. Right. Because this is all opinion and subjective figuring out like, okay, why, why point four and not point two or six, right. yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? It's all, and I think the, the great thing with the ratings is it's, it's like cl- definitely by far the, mo- well, in my opinion, at least like the most polarizing part about Pitchfork um, that people sort of, you know, if, if anybody rolls their eyes at Pitchfork, it's usually because of, you know, the, the, the <laughs> rating thing and everything. Yeah, but yeah. it's, I mean, you, like if you're going to review music, you have to quantify it somehow. I guess you don't have to, yeah. um, but I mean, it I think does, like, there's well, a barometer for so it. Specific. I, th- I think the specificity is why people like roll their eyes because yeah. they're like, oh, 6.2 or 6.3. It's not 6. just 3. one to five stars. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is though, it's like when, when you've done these long enough, like I, I'll read something and I'm like, yeah, it's, that's like a seven one. Like you, you totally, <laughs> like you get a, a hang for, for, of what a score means. Yeah. And yeah. I, yeah. I think one problem that's happened over time is people definitely in their minds like inflate. They, people assume that like if something gets a seven, that's like a bad score or like even a six, nine or something, but it's kind of like, you have to remember this is out of 10 and that's not bad. You know, it's like, so I think that's one thing where people will get mad and they won't actually read the review. They'll just kind of read the score and then take to the internet and be like, yeah, pitchfork, you guys are horrible and, <laughs> and all that kind of thing. But it's kind of like, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a horrible record. It's kind of, there's so many records released a year and it's kind of like, not all of them are going to follow you into the next year. Sure, kind of thing. Yeah. Every single record got, and eight, it's like, that's just disingenuous because yeah. there's not good records. Right. You know, like there's stuff that is fine and you're like, oh, yeah, this is pretty good. But it's not going to be like a favorite where 20 years later, you're like, yeah, I still listen to this one all the time. Like it's not going to have that kind of staying power. Right, right, right. So it's like, you know, like another band that I forgot to mention that I was, you know, into and was very important in my college years was Jawbreaker. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like, I still listen to that stuff. Yeah. The Jawbreaker records and I'm still like, these are great records, but it doesn't... Every record that's released now that I think is cool and decent and I'm listening to this week doesn't mean like 20 years down the road, I'm going to still be listening to those. So I think that has to be, that's where people get weird is they just expect every record to get a great score even if it's not a great record. Right. Just because they're like they're friends with a band or they they like it or, you know, just like, so everyone has like a reason. Like Mm -hmm. there's everyone out in the world, like every single record, there's at least one person who thinks it should get best new music. Right, right. Every single thing did, it would be like a meaningless score. (laughs) Yeah. Like, well, some per- one person could think, you know, one out al- the same exact album and you have two people, like one person could think it deserves like the infamous Jet review, um, yes. which, <laughs> and then another person thinks it's, you know, Rubber Soul or something like, you know what I mean? Like, and it's the same thing. And I think that's the thing with music or art in general. I mean, it's like, it's so personal to everybody. And I think that's where this sort of knee jerk reactions come from because they, it, you know, an album can be very personal to someone. So someone could like 
just love, you know, I'm trying to like, just off the top of my head, thinking of a band that would probably be polarizing, you know, <laughs> generally to a pitchfork reader, but like someone would be like, I love Linkin Park. Well, okay. But you know, the rest of us think they suck. Well, as soon as you assign a number or a review to that, the person who really likes it is going to, same with someone who would, you know, really love the new, like you mentioned, the new Deaf Heaven, which came out last year, which was an amazing right. album. Someone else yeah. who generally likes metal <coughs> might hear that and be like, uh, you know, I'm yeah. not into it. And, and I think that as soon as you assign a number and a review and, you know, say it is this, it sort of takes like the the personal side of it away from people who have kind of right. deemed it yeah. in their mind, something they love or don't love. And I think, you know, again, that, I, that's like, that comes to the territory. If you're going to review music, I mean, obviously you guys and anybody who reviews music, there's a point of not giving a shit with like, who cares? Like, this is our yeah, job. So this is what we're doing. People obviously gravitate towards it. So you're going to have people who complain. But at the same time, like we're doing a, you know, um, I don't know, people enjoy reading it. You know, it's like I mean, the thing, the thing, too, is like I, I tend to for you tend to forget the scale of what of what pitchwork is at this point. And, and it's kind of like <clears throat> to me, it's like me and um a bunch of like my friends and whatever sitting in a couple floors in a warehouse and we're like putting this thing together. Uh-huh. And it's, um, you kind of take a step back and you're like, wow, holy shit, a lot of people read this, but it's not something that I really think about all the time. And right. so you, that, that's part of the thing too. Is so like if something does get maybe not the best review in the world, that could have like an, an actual effect on, on the person or on the band. And so, um, that is like something where you, you don't want stuff to be like unnecessarily mean spirited or, right, right. um, being a, a dick just to be a dick. Like if something's going to be, if something's going to critique something, it should be like done in a smart way. That's kind of um, picking out what's actually maybe flawed with the record, and not just like taking cheap shots and all that. I think in the early days we definitely had more um, <clears throat> irreverent kind of writing, like the Jet thing, and um, not that that was writing, but like more irreverent take on things. I think at this point, think we're a little bit more responsible in that way because you see how that does have like a, a rippling effect and. Um, you can still critique something, but you don't want to just like be like, yeah, and this person's right. an asshole or something, because that's just beside the point and assholes make good records too. And it's just kind of like trying to, you know, keep things a little bit um, less like that. But yeah, I mean, I, you, you see that. That's why people by and large, people have this idea. I think people too have a misconception where they, they do think Pitchfork is like a, um, a giant corporation or something because it's, because it is widely read, but it's at the end of the day, it's like 40 people all said yeah. between, like um, our uh, tech people, like the people that run the ad stuff, like the Pitchfork TV and the editorial, it's like 40 people is pretty small. Like there's this headline coming from yesterday about Vice expanding their offices in New York. And it was, you know, I forget the number, but it was like for their 500 employees in yeah. New York or something. It's just yeah. like, you know, it's, yeah, Pitchfork is pretty tiny yeah, in comparison for, I mean, for a lot of these places. Yeah, for the impact it has, it's you know it seems like a, a, a relative to the impact it has and the events it puts on and everything and how widely uh, you know read it is. It's a fairly you know humble small team that's keeping this thing going compared to like you said a vice where it's a huge machine in the background i mean you guys aren't it's not like you're a senior editor but you don't actually edit and you just like check other people's work all day like you're actually <laughs> doing this stuff yeah. and i think that gets you know um 
lost in the mix sometimes is that, you know, it's not, you guys are passing these things off to like other people, like you're actually doing all this stuff. Um, on the, I guess on that thing where you were mentioned about like trying to, you know, review things smartly and everything. I know there's been artists over the years who have had problems with their reviews or their careers have been completely made because of the reviews. You guys must get emails and tweeted at and stuff like all the time, like oh, yeah. people pissed off, but like, there, I mean, this is just sort of like a breaking point of like, <laughs> sorry, man. Like, like, what do you want yeah, to you know? Tons of, yeah, you get like tons of hate mail and tons of like people with th- like making threats and stuff like that. It's sort of like, um, it's funny. I was talking to a friend earlier this morning and I was saying, yeah, you know, death groups broke up, broke up or whatever. So they're not going to play the festival. And he was like, he's like, yeah, you don't seem very upset. I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's like at yeah. this point, it's like you're kind of prepared for any, anything. And who, it's who would break like, your heart just, if they broke up yeah, though? Yeah, it is. It's yeah, it's a bummer. Not like yeah, it's like I like that band, but it's kind of like yeah, you know, um, it's interesting too. They broke up. Everyone's getting back together, so why not? You know, it's they're like they're bucking the trend of breaking up as opposed to being another reunion band or, yeah. or whatever. But it's you do get so much. Yeah, you get a lot of hate mail. You get people who are very angry, and you get um, people who are upset. But generally, you do get people that are angry, and it's like often if I get some of those that are kind of detailed enough and angry enough i'll try to respond and just explain like you know i think you're just misreading you're you're misreading this like you weren't trying to be jerks here and and generally like nine out of ten times if you write the person back they actually will respond and be like oh yeah you're right you know i'm sorry like i just got was really pissed off about this and once i think once they realize there actually is a person there Mm -hmm. and it's not like we're just a a, like a yeah a phone bank or like yeah. a computer bank or like or pitch, actually, pitchfork a review generator type thing like you know yeah. there is someone with an opinion and you're being it's going out there on the pitchfork platform but i guess yeah that's cool though i mean if you actually did take the time to write back and obviously you can't do that in every instance but that sort of humanizes it and anybody with a you know um good head on their shoulders can like you know maybe take the chance to be like all right cool i appreciate that so but um yeah well, i mean we also i mean we really have tried to like stay a place that does that writes and we try to avoid like you know click through galleries and yeah like, ridiculous lists about ridiculous things like, we have a list <laughs> but they're like year endless and stuff right, and not, right. Like, it's not it's not like the buzzfeed of of music like let that be for yeah. other websites but so i don't want to linger too much on like the score and all that stuff because i know there's something kind of coming up um two things really coming up that are really um I'd love to talk about, and that's, you know, mm-hmm. Pitchfork Festival and also Basilica, which, so Basilica is, is really kind of more your baby. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, Pitchfork Fest, how involved are you in that and, and sort of selecting artists and everything? Um, I guess, well, let's not even make it relative to Basilica. What's kind of your role with just the festivals and everything? Um, yeah. and, and I um, think it's sort of like we, we do so many events at this point, And so, um, usually it's, uh, me and um, Ryan Schreiber, who started the site, and Chris Kasky, who's based in Chicago and is the president of the site. It's like often the three of us just sort of, um, you know, going back and forth with ideas of, of who we think should play something. Like, all right, you know, for, for instance, for like South by Southwest, we'll say, okay, we have like two day parties, a show at the church, and, and my metal showcase. So the metal showcase I just do by myself and then like the other uh-huh. stuff. We'll say, well, what about what if we try to get Sun Kill Moon? And like, we'll all kind of, we'll all sort of have to agree on something in that in that case. Like, all right, let's let's go for Sun Kill Moon, or let's try that. So it's a lot of just going back and forth, and like on building a Google document, and kind of laying bands out and seeing what seems to make sense on there. Yeah. Um, so each show is, is different. Each show is um, approached differently. Like Pitchfork Festival is clearly like you know Kendrick Lamar and Grimes and, and bigger acts, where like these are people we cover. 
you know, Kendrick's album was like our number one album the year it came out. So like, that's like kind of a no brainer. And then Grimes is someone we care a lot about or write a lot about. So another no brainer. So with those, it's kind of like those are in a way it's the Pitchwork Festival is in a sense, like the living iteration of the site or something like it's people uh-huh. that bands were currently writing a lot about. And, um, uh, uh, interested in, I mean, with the Chicago stuff, there's actually, there's a, there's a production team based in Chicago, um, that kind of runs everything. So it's, it's something that as far as the events go, it's actually one of like the lighter lifting. Like I don't have to do much heavy lifting for it. Whereas something like a South by Southwest, you're, you're really there and you're kind of like, all right, let's make sure everyone shows up on time and <laughs> yeah. or the North side festival or, if we never do official CMJ stuff, but if we, last year we did a couple shows at 285 Kent during CMJ, and they're much more like get there at load in and figure th- make sure everything is you know figured out and all mm-hmm. that. So those are more hands on, and and the, the 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 Chicago stuff is more like Chris, who's in Chicago, and um, he's sort of piloting stuff from over there. So it's sort of like throwing ideas out for bands, but he's really kind of there in Chicago and mm-hmm. kind of making sure it all comes together. Cool. So again, it's like, goes back to what you're saying, you know, like he's the president of the site, but he's like, you know, doing, working on the festival. So it's like that kind of thing where everyone's sort of juggling a lot of stuff. And yeah. then with Basilica, it's much more like that space only fits a thousand people. Mm-hmm. Chicago, you know, for the festival, it's like 20,000. Right. Right. So if you're doing Basilica. You can be much more like have a weirder lineup. And uh-huh. it's like, all right, let's have swans and deaf heaven and, and white lung and have like Meredith from perfect pussy do a reading and whatever. And it's, it's, it's all stuff that again, that I'm really interested in, but you, I mean, Swans is, is huge, but it's like you can kind of have more of that. Like last sure. year, it was Pig Destroyer and Evie and Christ and Juliana Barwick mm-hmm. and Pharmacon, which is a great lineup, but it's like a pretty weird lineup, I'll say. Um, yeah, I was reading about it, and it sounded like with the whole thing that kind of was orchestrated and came together. And for it sounded like it was incredible. Um, for and I'll, before you go on about Basilica, too, I was going to just kind of read this um, kind of. <laughs> Just a quick, from Village Voice, there's a um, review about the show, about the event last year. And and it just kind of talks about, you know, founders Brandon Stosi, editor at Pitchfork, former Hole bassist Melissa Oftamar, and Black Lips <laughs> manager Brian Duran wanted to keep their, quote, anti-festival free from corporate sponsorship eyesores, held it at an unheated warehouse space two hours outside of Manhattan, all in the name of music and art. And like, I know it's like on the surface, it sounds like this sort of perfectly crafted sentence that is almost like made up. But like when I read that and saw pictures and like saw the whole event and read about it, I was just like, man, I love that because it's like they're making like the anti-festival idea. There's so many festivals and it really does seem like more of this like art event, something that would be at the MoMA, you know, something that would be a performance right. type thing. And it's not just, you know, art. like I mean, to put Pig Destroyer in that context is so cool because who else is going to really do that for them? Like they're going to go up and just play like a sweaty show like they can do in any other city. But to play in, mm-hmm. a, in a venue like that, that's very, very tightly um, crafted and, you know, very intentional about the way things are all done. I think that's a really a really cool thing. Um, and, you know, so I just love that, you know, you have this pitchfork platform that you kind of could, could have, you know, tried to work this in, but you really kind of created this whole new, um, separate thing. And, you know, it's always one of those things, um, questions I think people ask, like if you could do a festival and have any artists that you want, you know, who would you put together? And you're actually doing that. And I think one of my questions for you was in terms of Basilica, 
since it's uh-huh. really something that you're kind of running, um, are there any artists that you'd like to get eventually that you haven't been able to yet? Or is this exactly the way it's meant to be and exactly who you want? Like, is there not really this pie in the sky idea of who could be there as much as like, no, this is like, this is the what it's supposed to be. Like, this is exactly what it was dreamt up to be. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it honestly is, it's been exactly what we wanted it to be because the first year we started, it was really small and we had like Liturgy and Mick Barr and, and Gang Gang Dance and a few other things. It was like really <clears throat> last minute. Basically, like I, I'd been doing these weird shows out at, um, I, I'm old friends with Matthew Barney. So he and I were doing shows out at his studio that were like, we had Wold play and we had Inquisition and it was like a lot of black metal and yeah. noise stuff. We would, we would sort of mix in um, art and things. Like when we did Wold, we had the artist Collier Shore, she choreographed an amateur wrestling match. There was like a wrestling match and like during that and we had the um an art critic read um Sean from Wold wrote his dissertation on religion. So she wrote read this thing on religion. So it was like all these kind of weird things. And um Brian, who's who they mentioned that sentence, the Black Ops manager, he was there and saw it and, and he'd been talking with Melissa about doing events up at Basilica. So he saw like, hey, here's this guy doing this kind of metal stuff, but with this kind of art angle to it and um, kind of really carefully thought out events. And so like he, they invited me to work with them on this. And so the first one was really last minute. And then the last year was one where it kind of really came together where it got a lot of press and, and sort of came, became a bigger deal where we had this piece, this one moment where Pig Destroyer, um, Juliana Barwick, um, Evie and Christ and Pharmacon all played at the same time. And uh, Matthew Barney and um, his composer, Jonathan Bepler conducted them. So they, so it was this amazing thing where you have like Pig Destroyer playing and you have Juliana Barwick singing for Pig Destroyer and like <laughs> Pharmacon's noise with Evan Christ beats. And it was yeah. just like this beautiful thing. And so that ended up like a lot of people wrote about it. The New York Times did this thing like this is what festival should be. And the New Yorker did a piece about like, you know, as cities like New York become more expensive, like this is people move outside of the cities and do these kind of events. And so like those things were, it was amazing. So what that, what that enabled us to do was like the second I saw the space that Melissa had up there, I was just like, we need to have swans here. That'd be amazing. Mm-hmm. And so like last year's press basically enabled this year, um, swans being like, yeah, this sounds really cool. Let's do it. And so that was like the dream band for me with swans. And then I love, I'm a huge deaf heaven fan. And then the idea of like having swans, Death Heaven playing before Swans to me was just like, that would be amazing. That's, yeah, to me. yeah. So, so it's just like, so this year is really like exactly what I wanted it to be. Sure. Um, and like the other night has like, you know, Tim Hecker collaborating with a Gamelon band and just like all this amazing stuff. So it's like, we sort of have this year a set. And to me, this is like the ideal lineup. And then next year, I'm not quite sure where we'll go from there. But it's like in the back of my head, I always have like certain bands that I think would make good sense in that space, like Godspeed You Black Emperor uh-huh. or other groups that kind of have that kind of vast sound. So I think in this year too, we have the visual artist, um, Sterling Ruby is, is doing stuff like each year we want to have an artist, like mm-hmm. a visual artist that, cl- that contributes. So all that stuff just seems perfect. And then because we're doing it without sponsors and we're doing it, um, it's like really, like it's one of those things where like, you know, I, I refresh the ticket link throughout the day to see how tickets are selling. Because <laughs> yeah. It's like, it really actually matters because that's how we're paying for it. Right. And, <clears throat> It's cool because we're like, it's not till September and it's already halfway sold out. So I feel That's like awesome. it's sort of like this year, it's really kind of, um, it's becoming something and from the ground up. And so we want to just keep trying to do it the same way and like avoid 
having like signs everywhere that like, you know, like sponsor signs and stuff, just kind of see if we can keep it the way we've been doing it and just like make the programming strong enough that, um, it can, it can continue to function like that. So right. yeah, to me, that's like kind of the dream festival. And like Hudson itself is this beautiful, like weird little town and there's a lot going on there. And it's the way the space is right. Like it's like 50 yards from a train track. And then on the other side of the train track is the Hudson river. So it's in this like kind of idyllic, beautiful spot. Mm-hmm. Um, part of what's helped us is you can just hop on a train from, you know, New York and, um, be up there in two hours. You can actually take the train from Chicago to Hudson too, which is kind of cool. Like it's yeah. the very end of the line. So uh-huh. it takes like 15 hours, but it can, it can be done. So I think people are kind of, you know, coming up on trains and just camping or staying in cheap hotels yeah. and stuff. And yeah, it feels like a, like a, a getaway or like a sleepaway camp or something. Right. So and the way you're, de- really awesome. and the way you're yeah. describing it and what you read about and the, and I mean, obviously most importantly, the musicians and the artists that you have there make it, you know, when you say anti-festival, I think, you know, on one hand, like that could sound sort of trite to someone, mm-hmm. but when you really like understand what it is you're doing, it's, no, that's the perfect sense because it's not like you're not going to get there. And it, anybody who, who goes is not going to expect like a Coachella vibe. Like it's like, right, yeah. obviously you're putting on something that on the surface is like, oh, yeah, it's like this music festival, but it's really not. I mean, it's more of this like, you know, it seems more like based on who you're choosing to be that, you know, have be there. It's more of a, per, a you know, I don't want to say performance art thing. It's still about mm-hmm. just the people getting up playing music, but you know, just more of a crafted, like sort of finely, you know, tuned, uh, to use, you know, like, I didn't want to say curated, but you know, very well, perfectly curated thing that isn't just this like stage one, stage two, stage three, like three different types of music serving all people. Like, no, it's very limited to this many. And it's just exactly like this kind of beautiful sort of event that happens and then it's done. And it's just like, yeah, I don't know, a different experience. Yeah, I mean, I think because the space is small enough, um, you can. We wanted each thing to kind of blend into the other thing. Like last year, Richard Hellred too, and it was one of these things where when I interviewed Pharmacon, she mentioned being really into Richard Hell when she was younger. Like she grew up in New York City, and this idea of like this New York artist. So then I was like, huh, that's like. So we had all these things that kind of connected like that. So like Richard Hellred and Pharmacon played after him, and that was the connection there for me. And then uh-huh. like Peter Sotos read early on, you know, like. He used to be in White House and he was another person that Margaret from Pharmacon had mentioned. So like I wanted the writers to connect to her because like, she played after them. And then it went from like Pig Destroyer and interviews have talked about how they're really influenced by Matthew Barney and influenced by Sotos as well. So it was like all these kind of connections between the musicians and the artists. And it kind of – it was just – to me it was like this – you know, almost – you know, you don't say this often with Pig Destroyer. But it was like this beautiful thing to kind of watch um, – just watch these musicians who have generally nothing in common watching because we had all the four stages facing them, each other. So they're like all standing facing each other and kind of watching for cues. Sure. So kind of to see like Barwick and Pig Destroyer sort of making this music together is to me amazing. Or like Evie and Christ, you know, who had just finished producing, doing beats for Kanye West, um, for Jesus, like to see him like watching Pharmacon while she's like banging the sheet metal and he's like, adds <laughs> to it. It's just yeah. like, yeah, it's amazing. It felt like, a community kind of collaborative thing. Like I feel like often when you go to festivals, you're just kind of standing in the middle of a field and there's really no connection to the music. I mean, in many cases, festivals are kind of the worst possible way to experience music. Yeah. And I think, um, if you can, if you can kind of recreate that feeling that you get when you're at a small show, like for me, a show I always think of is like in, I guess like 1991 seeing Jesus lizard at CBGB's and me being young and kind of blowing my mind and just kind of, 
seeing how David Yao is so violent and over the top and uh-huh. just standing there and being swallowed by the crowd. And like, that's something that when Jesus Lizard had these reunion shows and you see them at ATP or something, you're kind of like, yeah, they sound cool, but you don't have that feeling again. Like that danger is not there. Right, and right. that like community is not there. And you're kind of just like standing in this big room and you're like, all right, you know, whatever. It's not the same. So in a way, Basilica, like we're kind of trying to replicate that in a way. Like I'm hoping when Death Heaven plays, like you really do get a swarm of people kind of like collapsing in on each other and stuff. And it's not like everyone just kind of standing back and um, wearing like headdresses and being like Coachella <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, that's awesome. And I think it's great because, you know, I, I've always hated people who complain about things and then don't do anything about it. Cause I just think right. you're sort of adding to the noise. So if you ever got, I mean, you must've gotten to the point where you were like, man, like festivals suck. Like I hate this. <laughs> like, but then you don't do anything about it, even though you obviously are in a position to have resources to do something about it. That would kind of suck. Like if we were sitting here and you were talking about like, man, like I want to do my own thing. Like, no, I mean, you're now in year two of putting on something that's exactly what you want to what you want to do and it's going really well and it's mm-hmm. being received really well and i mean what more can you ask for i mean that's that's great and you've gotten other people to kind of who sh- sort of share your vision all kind of come together to, to do this and and i think that's really awesome um and uh yeah so i mean kudos to you for doing that and for the other people who have been working with you and uh um I just, I hope it goes well and, and is just years to come of, of really great stuff. Maybe is it something you ever see carrying over into like another city? Like, could there be a Chicago, you know, obviously it's named after the venue it's at. Right. But Mm -hmm. it couldn't be Basilica Chicago to be something else, or maybe it would be, I I don't know, but, or do you just see this sort of for, you know, at least, um, in the near future, just kind of being this one sort of yearly annual thing that happens just there. We've been, I mean, we've been talking, like, sometimes Brian and I will talk, he's, he's based in LA, so we talked about doing something in, like, the desert in LA or something, so we, outside of LA, we've talked about that, and then we've just, we've been doing more events in general, like, pitchfork with um, smaller spaces, like, I've been talking to the kitchen in New York City, in Manhattan, about, like, trying to do some stuff where it's some, like, visual art, collaboration with music kind of thing, like, we had, we have, a, like, a, a loose series called Forms, which we think of as music and art collaborations and we've done like a few things under that umbrella at um moma ps1 in the winter they have a dome in their courtyard that fits like 600 people so we've done a couple things out there with visual artists and musicians so i think we have those kind of things that pop up in different places that we did a thing at the new museum one time where we had like three floors and grimes playing on the top floor and trash talk playing in the bottom floor and just like create you know that was an- another really fun amazing thing but i feel like as far as an annual thing we that like Basilica, that's been unique so far. But otherwise, we, we have definitely been trying to do stuff in kind of more interesting spaces or um, more off the beaten path spaces and things sometimes that are outside of like bigger cities, like trying to find more things that are in a smaller place like Hudson. Um, and we're, we're always kind of thinking of that. Like we very rarely at this point will do a show like at a, a typical venue in New York City. Like if we do something, it's usually in a warehouse or um, – in some other random place like the only exception is saint vitus and that's um just because i love saint vitus and um like the guys that run it are great and i feel like have i have a real connection with them and just um always happy to collaborate with them so that's like really like the one proper venue that we work with is vitus Uh otherwise we do a lot of more random stuff it's like dave and i from saint vitus like he grew up a hardcore kid too but in long island and we have this thing where we always say something is we say it's FTK, which means for the kids. And we always say that like 
we, uh, we try to, everything we do, we try to keep that in mind that it's like for the kids who are just getting into stuff and like trying to figure things out and keep things as pure as possible uh-huh. and like avoiding doing things for like reasons that are, um, uh, outside of just the music. And so like, we're always kind of, that's our thing. So when we did, when we had Converge play there, it was very much like, we're like, all right, this is definitely one of these things where I just feel like they want to play a show. We're giving them a place to play. They're not asking for money really. Like these, whatever, you know, it's just like really like this ideal situation announced it the day before sells out, it's packed. And I remember like he and I just kind of looking at each other during that show, just like, holy shit, like, yeah. here we are. Converge in this space. It fits like 250 people and it's just amazing. So it's like, he and I are very much on the same wavelength. And so doing shows there is very easy and very fun. But yeah. it's like you often run into places where they aren't on that wavelength. And then it's just like, eh, it's less interesting yeah. for me to to do stuff when it's not really like that. Mm-hmm. It's really cool when bands like Converge or Pig Destroyer or Swans like really get it and sort of understand what you're doing. And, and those are all bands too that still are very true to the type of music that they want to play. You know, and there's, mm-hmm. you know, but they have this artistic sensibility to him obviously converge with jake and the art that he's done for years with you know with converge and death wish i mean that he was like really the first sort of musician slash artist that um i connected with in terms of Mm -hmm. someone who does both things and cares about the design and cares about the art you know i remember when jane doe came out going and getting that and just being like oh my god like who like who who's putting this all together and like really understanding at the time like you know and and so obviously it just makes sense that you know like someone like like a band like Converge or Pig Destroyer doing what they did. Um, it just makes sense. And there's some artists that just like really fit with doing that. And it still can be mm-hmm. like for the kids, but at the same time, it can be sort of this, like, I don't know. It's like this mix of highbrow, lowbrow, like sort of balance of like, they really get it. They're intellectual and artistic about what they do. And it's, it's done with a really, really refined taste, but you can also just like go nuts at their show and like lose your shit yeah, totally. and like have fun. And it's yeah. great to pull that all into one place, you know, by people who get it and understand like what it's meant to be with artists who understand that too. And they're not like, what the hell is this? Like, this isn't a typical yeah. show. Like it's something it totally be like, yeah, in our mind, it's like, it can be like super highbrow and still like, you know, FTK or for the kids. And it's like, we always hold up Ian McKay is like a, he's sort of the grandfather in many ways where mm-hmm. it's like someone who's managed to do this and always had beautiful design and a really good aesthetic. And then still, like, you know, it's one of those things where you just, you can sleep rest assured that Fugazi is not going to reunite. You know, there's all there's these kind of things where you're <laughs> so, just like. So there'll these be guys no Fugazi at Basilica um, happening. <laughs> <laughs> and I've tried, believe me, like I've definitely contacted him a number of times. Been like, hey, and he, and he just basically said, he's like, yeah, you know, the the way we, only way to get together is if we needed to get together. And, and I mean, I think what he means is like, if they, if there was some real reason why they needed to do it, they would do it, but they're not going to do it for the money. Like right. if they were doing it yeah. for like some to raise community spirit or something they would do it but <laughs> yeah, right, they're, right. They're, not, they're just not going to do it yeah. as a cash grab and so it's like yeah. I, re- I super res- I really respect that and it's like that kind of spirit to me is um, like what I started out uh-huh. being into and it's kind of what I want to continue being into and now that I have you know I have like two little kids and my four-year-old loves Deaf Heaven and <laughs> he's going to like very excited to see them play and I kind of you know, it's like cheesy but you kind of want to pass that spirit on to them and absolutely so they, they're like, yeah you can be into these things and not necessarily into them because you're trying to make money off of it. But if you do end up like making a career out of it, that's great. But like not going into that in your mind, like, all right, I'm going to like try and cut corners and, Mm. you know, just kind of being into it because you're excited about it and it's what your life is. And and sort of that's 
that's I think what Dave and I mean when we think of music in that sense, like going in with the right attitude about it and being into it for the right reasons and um, having like a pure approach to it. But in the same sense, like being able to um, have a good show and, you know, Vitus has amazing sound, like the best sound system of any venue in, in Brooklyn, I would say. And like, it's well-run place. It's always on time. Like all those kind of things are important, but uh-huh. also like if you couple that with like the right attitude, then it's like, yeah, it's perfect. Right. Right. And it's always amazing too, what you get when you just ask people like, you know, like, I don't know how hard you guys have had to, you know, try and convince any of these artists to play like any of the shows or pitchfork or Basilica or whatever. But, um, and you know, I know it's a business on the band side of things, but I, I guess this is the first opportunity I've had on one of the shows I've done to sort of jump, you know, use something that a a guest said as sort of a, a way to mention, then like the mm-hmm. name of this show, Life and Limb, was was, you know, taken from the song of the same name by Fugazi from from the argument. And I came mm-hmm. up, you know, the name sort of came to me like a couple of years ago. I was listening to the album and I was just like, man, that's gonna be the name of this thing I'm gonna do. And like maybe someday when I turn it into something like Ian will be interested. And I eventually emailed him because I wanted to use the song in the intro of the show. And he, mm-hmm. he got back to me and like he was so gracious and so nice about it. And he was like, Hey, do you have any sponsors? If so, like, can you tell me who they are? And I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't right now anyways. And, and he was like, all right, cool. Like I'll get back to you. And he got back to me and he's like, yeah, talk to the band. They said, it's all good. And so, I mean, like, I think again, just like, um, just like making a connection with a musician who understands what you're doing and can lend, you know, what their, their craft to your project um, is one of the most amazing feelings. I mean, for me, that was such a cool thing on a personal level. Cause I'm like, I look up to this dude so much, so many people do. And uh-huh. the fact that he's like cool with me using his music in a podcast, you know, and just sort of as this like intro in the thing, like it just, it's awesome. And, and it's, it's amazing to me. And so, um, again, it's just sort of like the curators, the people who are putting these things together and crafting these events like you're doing and like what I do with this podcast to have the artists reciprocate and really understand what you're doing. Um, I mean, it totally makes sense that you'd want to take that sort of, um, passion that you've got for all this and pass it down to your kids. I mean, this is like, goes beyond just the love of music. Yeah. I mean, obviously that's what it's all about, but like, you know, there, you know, these people personally and, and you want to pass mm-hmm. it on because it's meant so much to you. And again, just like kind of putting a bow on all this conversation, like that's really what this is all about, you know, different people coming, coming from different places and, and making connections and, and really appreciating what each other does to make something kind of bigger than what both of them might do individually, you know, just the, the point of, and beauty of collaboration really. So, um, yeah, hundred percent. it's like, I mean, it's like the idea of being, you know, everyone really says if someone's a lifer or something. And to me, it's like, yeah, I feel like, you know, like I said, I'm 40 and it's been started doing shows when I was 13 or whatever. And it's something that I can, I'm happy about now. And then I'll sort of stop and say to my wife, it's like, you know, it's kind of crazy that, um, you know, basically like I'm putting on a Swan show who's a band that I loved when I was, you know, in their early days that I loved as a teenager. And now I'm like doing a show with them or when we, we did this thing at, um, uh, at the Hirshhorn museum in DC where we, with this artist, um, Doug Aiken and like Ian McKay came out to that. And like, he and I hung out a bit and he was like, yeah, you want to go to the zoo with, he has a kid too. He's like, we well, can take our kids to the zoo. And to me, I'm just like, holy shit. Like this is this guy who was my idol when I was, um, you know, a preteen and now we're sort of, he's here for this thing that I put together and it's, yeah, you couldn't ask for anything more than that. It's like, yeah. cause it's, 
it's a love of music, but it's also like a, a life decision in many ways. Like I remember being very young and getting tattoos very low on my arms, very visible tattoos and thinking like, all right, this is this way. I don't become a banker. <laughs> like sort of like, yeah, yeah. Just kind of back then when that. people like frown on that more yeah. and that kind of thing. And right. yeah, just like you sort of are like, yeah, you look back and like, wow, now I've, you, you do that. So yeah, you don't, you can never really take it for granted. Even like when a day is really hectic and really stressful. And by the time I get home, I'm ready to pass out. It's like, yeah, but come on. <laughs> it's yeah. like, it's, it's not, it's not bad. Right. Right. Well, cool. I, um, I, I want, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, but is there any other, um, projects or anything I, I didn't ask about or touch on that you'd want to talk about or share about or anything like in the works or just something you're excited about at the moment or, um, anything sort of, you know, the, the, the final question, um, you know, um, I, think, I, I mean, nothing I think of, I mean, like, no, I just, I just think it's, it's, you know, we're think, things are good at Pitchwork right now. We're just getting a lot of, we're doing a lot more and doing more live things. And we have some, like, we've been kind of been being more specific about things we're doing and, um, in the next few months, like more things will come out that I think people will be excited about. So yeah, it's just like, it's, it's an exciting time, I think. And we're all having fun. No, that's <laughs> awesome. That's all that you can ask for, man. That's uh that's yeah. any, any interview I've done so far. Like I just hope in the end, like, you know, you like everybody's got their peaks and valleys and everything, but in the end, man, like it's just all about being people doing what they love, having fun. And like in the face of anything else that might come up, like still whatever, always being drawn back to doing it because you just realize like, shit like this is this is who i am this is what i do and there's no deterring that like no matter what you know stuff comes up or whatever so i'm glad to hear you're having fun with it still after all these years it's cool to kind of hear the story from beginning up until now and just kind of understand like where you've come from and everything and and um just see you know a passion realized that's that's what this has always been about for me to hear those stories and i I really appreciate you sharing yours so um thanks for having me yeah it's fun yeah Yeah, absolutely having me on yeah definitely my pleasure my pleasure um well um any good fourth of july plans for you guys and family and um let me think yeah well you know i i I do this um i i help uh curate the 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 summer like warm-up series at moment ps1 which is like electronic stuff so i think there's some this year i I tried to sneak in some things like containers playing in vatican shadow and some other things and i'm gonna i think i'm gonna take we're gonna stop by that for a little bit my um my wife and kids but as far as fourth of july proper i think we're going to one of my older son henry's um friends parents have like a an apartment right by the river that we're gonna stand on the roof and watch the fireworks nice that sounds <laughs> so, awesome <laughs> yeah it's exactly what we should be doing glad you're not exactly, to, yeah him driving or you know whatever oh i gotta work <laughs> so yeah i mean this year they switched the fireworks back to the east river so it's you can actually see it from Brooklyn where last year you could see it, but it was super distant. Yeah. So this year we'll be able to actually like witness the fireworks, which is good. Nice. And then actually, yeah, you know, this, this other thing is, is a birthday this weekend. So I'm going to have a birthday dinner with my friends. Awesome. So I guess there is a lot this weekend. Cool. Yeah. Sounds like a fun weekend, man. Well, yeah. Um, cool. Thanks again. Enjoy it. Um, yeah. Have a good 4th of July and um, I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having All right, me. All right, man. Right on. Thanks. Okay, talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.